Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough. Today, uh, we have a, a special guest with us, uh, New York Times op-ed columnist and the author of six books, I believe, the latest of which is The Deep Places, a memoir about illness and discovery. Ross Stouthit. Ross, welcome to the Urbane Cowboys. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to finally be on. Yes, yes. Uh, so I remember uh, in the fall of 2015, I was coming to D.C., and so I was harassing various people that I tangentially knew about, you know, gr- getting a drink or something. And so I reached out to you, and, and you uh, sent me back a message that says, I can't, I can't come because I've moved to Connecticut and contracted Lyme disease. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah. You know, that's yeah. an accurate an accurate note and right. and a good excuse, right? That's right. Yes, that's as far as excuses go. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know that you needed to go to such extents if you just didn't want to hang out with me. But uh, so, I mean, what 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 happened there? Uh, your your book is about this, obviously the new, the new book. Um, but um, yeah, it seems like a kind of um, you know almost. Uh, Benedict option from hell. Right. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. It's <laughs> cinematic about it, but it's not uh it's not a happy movie, you know. It's one of those other types of movies. Uh, yeah, so we we had this fantasy that I mean I think it's a common fantasy. Maybe it's like particularly common to a certain kind of conservative pundit. Um, but a fantasy of, you know, escaping the flesh pots of Babylon and getting out of the corruptions of Washington, D.C. and moving to somewhere with land and fences and stone walls and chickens and all of these kind of things. Um, and so, and my wife and I were both from Connecticut and I had been in D.C. for 13 years since college and she had been in various places, but had been in D.C. basically since we were married. And we weren't really excited about raising our kids there for the long term. Um, We had a little row house in Capitol Hill that was too small for us. We didn't want to really move to McLean or Silver Spring. Um, You know, we foolishly didn't understand that we should should just move to Texas. You know, I mean, right, like, like everyone makes mistakes. So we we move, we decided to move to Connecticut uh, and be close to our families and buy a house in the country. And then our house in D.C., because the real estate market was insane, sold for uh, a a lot of money. And we took that money and did not invest it wisely in Tesla stock or (laughs) something. We we invested it in, in, in rural real estate, because why not? And, you know, it might have all worked out really well. And in a you know, there's an alternative timeline where I'm leading a thriving commune or something, you know, in, in, in the countryside. But in this timeline, while we were still in D.C., after we had found the house and done the inspection, which involved a lot of tramping over this sort of overgrown property, I just got really, really sick. Um, and in a way that nobody in D.C., none of the doctors in D.C. could figure out what was wrong with me. And it was basically 
you know, migratory pain all over my body, weird feelings inside and outside, muscle pain, joint pain, chest pain, gagging, insomnia, um, headaches, a, a huge mess. And I spent our last few months in DC just before you uh, you came to visit, I guess, uh, seeing like 12, 12 different doctors and doing all kinds of tests and finding nothing and being told that it was all stress, it was psychosomatic, it was an anxiety disorder, all these things. Um, and I lost 40 pounds and was sleeping an hour a night. Um, so that was sort of the pure medical mystery part of the story. And then we got to Connecticut somehow and sort of crash landed in this 1790s farmhouse that I no longer felt capable of owning, but we did. Uh, and once we were in Connecticut, the doctor said, oh, we see things like crazy things like this all the time. You probably acquired Lyme disease while inspecting your, <laughs> your rural property, Ross. Um, and Lyme disease is, of course, a lovely bacteria carried by ticks. Uh, it's named for these small towns on the Connecticut shore, really lovely little towns, antiquing, bed and breakfasts, miserable illness, you know, everything, everything you associate with like Stephen King's New England. Um, and unfortunately, the problem with Lyme disease is that if you have it and take antibiotics and don't immediately get better, no one agrees on what, how to treat it next. Most people get better with about, you know, four to six weeks of antibiotics, but a pretty significant number of people don't, um, anywhere from 10 to 15%, something in there. So that's a lot of people. There are 500,000 cases of Lyme disease now every year. Um, and those people are basically told by the CDC and by sort of official medicine that they probably don't have an active infection anymore. They probably have, you know, some kind of residual inflammation, some kind of autoimmune problem, slash, it's all in their head. Um, and they should just sit and wait to get better. And that did not work at all <laughs> for me. <laughs> so I went and saw the other doctors, the somewhat more outsiderish doctors who say, no, actually, you probably still have an infection. The Lyme bacteria is really adaptable and burrows deep into your tissue and does all these crazy things to shape shift when it comes in contact with your immune system or with drugs intended to kill it. And so actually, you have to treat yourself in really complicated ways with lots of drugs and weirder things than that. Um, and so that's what I did and have been doing uh, down to the present and eventually began to get better and have gotten a lot better well enough to write this book. Um, but that's, yeah, that's basically... That's basically the story, I think, of what this book is and why it exists. It's, you know, it's a story about medical mystery, medical controversy, chronic illness, pain, suffering, God, real estate disaster, and um, things like that. I grew up in Texas. I live in Texas. We don't have Lyme disease down here. And in fact, I knew so little about Lyme disease before reading your book. I didn't realize uh, it could be cured uh, in anyone. I thought it was just like one of those things that you got and then just had forever. I guess because like the only the only time uh, like I had ever really heard about it was you know people talking about these chronic cases or whatever. Uh, why? I mean it it seems um, it seems like kind of a mystery. Why do you think the there seems to be a lot of resistance uh, in the medical establishment or whatever to 
chronic Lyme, right? Yes. Uh, and I guess yes. that just basically, it's a bacteria. We use the antibiotics, so that should kill it. So, I mean, what, what do you think is, what do you think is driving that? There seems to be. I mean, they're in the, they're in the pocket of big tick, man, <laughs> you know, yeah. right. The R street Institute especially needs to do some work on the impact uh-huh. of ticks, yeah, ticks yeah. lobbying Congress. Um, no, I mean, I think it's a combination of things, right? So yeah, there's sort of a basic, a basic and reasonable medical confidence in antibiotics. Antibiotics work, they kill things, they make people better. We don't want to over-treat with them and overuse them because doctors are always getting criticized for using too many antibiotics and creating, you know, antibiotic resistant superbugs. So there's sort of a default that one, antibiotics are good to you know, you only want to use them if you're sure that they work and there's actually an infection there. Um, And then there's the reality, well, then there's just sort of a historical pattern where the first doctors who sort of discovered Lyme disease and treated it were often rheumatologists who were very focused on immune system pathologies. And so it sort of made sense to those doctors that, you know, if you have a persistent persistent symptoms in a patient, it's more likely to be a problem with their immune system than a problem with a residual infection. That That's just a sort of like culture of medicine kind of bias that exists at the beginning of Lyme disease and shapes the debate in various ways. Um, but And then there's just the reality that, you know, Lyme disease is super weird, the chronic form. It has all kinds of symptoms. It you know, seems to get into all kinds of systems in your body. So patients who suffer from it report this dizzying array of symptoms. And then even the doctors who treat it, who are often, you know, really, really smart, also often quite eccentric, it's not like they have this sort of, you know, one size fits all simple method of getting people better from Lyme disease. They give you combinations of antibiotics. They tell you to experiment with different combinations of antibiotics till you find a combination that works. They treat people for months. They treat people for years. They are usually open to, you know, herbs and supplements and various things that official medicine is more skeptical of. Um, So, you know, if you think of it in sort of Thomas Cunian, you know, scientific revolutions terms, the sheer number of patients who have these chronic symptoms and the fact that there really is solid evidence that Lyme disease persists in despite antibiotic treatment, like they've done experiments on various animals where they give them Lyme disease and dose them with antibiotics. And then kind of ingeniously, they put a tick on them and a tick that doesn't have any Lyme disease and lets the t- the tick drinks their blood and then guess what the tick gets Lyme disease from the person who's or the animal host who's supposedly cured. Um, so there's all that evidence to suggest Lyme disease really persists, and that's enough to sort of undercut the conventional wisdom. But then to really reshape conventional wisdom, you still need a theory to replace it. And since there isn't any kind of simple treatment. There's just a lot of weird experiments. You can sort of have this failing consensus hang on because you you haven't had the Copernicus or the Galileo of Lyme disease to come along and say, okay, here's the th- three drug combination that will knock out even chronic Lyme disease in six to eight weeks. That, that treatment does not exist at, at the moment. Um, and I think that's just a key part of, you know, how this 
I think pretty obviously incorrect <laughs> consensus um, persists and still shapes, you know, how doctors are trained in medical school and how people are trained to think about it. I, I should also say for the sake of your Texan listeners, that there are cases of Lyme disease in Texas. It is it is rare, but they, you're up to a few hundred cases annually. Um, and so, you know, you still don't want to completely, completely, completely rule it out, even in, um, you know, even in the Republic of Texas. But mostly you guys have the Lone Star tick rather than the deer tick. And you have a slightly different suite of um, tick-borne illnesses. That's the wonderful thing about the tick and, you know, different parts of the country, different kinds of ticks carry totally different diseases. So, yeah. you know, you, you can get you something different bit. depending on where you are. The, the Lone Star tick is the largest tick, correct? It would have to um, be. That sounds plausible, but I have to admit, I don't know exactly the relative size. I do know that the deer tick is a particular, oh no, I'm looking, I have this in front of me. Looks like the wood tick is bigger than the Lone Star. Oh, tick. no, 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 no. We can't, we can't accept I know that everything's answer. bigger in Texas, but I, I think, mm-hmm. um, but the deer tick is particularly tiny and the really important challenge is that in its, um, in the springtime when I probably got Lyme disease and you're more likely to get Lyme disease, you get ticks in what's called their nymphal stage when they're basically the size of a poppy seed. So it's really easy to get one digging into your flesh without actually noticing it. And that's, I mean, that's the big, the big problem is people who, who, get bitten by a tick, don't realize it and get sick very gradually. So there's no sort of clear diagnostic moment. Um, if you get a tick on you and immediately dose yourself with antibiotics, which is what increasingly people are told to do in the Northeast. And that's a change for the better. Like if, when my kids have had ticks on them, we go to the pediatrician, they give them a dose of antibiotics without waiting to see if Lyme disease develops. If you do that, most of the time you're going to be okay. The problem is there's just a huge number of people who don't even realize um, that they've been bitten. So here, here is here is my more serious question. Um, you are a conservative writer for the New York Times, so clearly you have a thick skin. Um, you've written six <laughs> books. How how does the the public reaction not not so much the reaction from the medical community, but how does the public reaction to this book? How is it? similar or different than the public reaction to your other books? I mean, I would say that this book, one, it gets a quicker reaction from at least some readers. Uh, You know, it's my other books are sort of, you know, pompous assessments of the state of Western civilization, right? Um, Which obviously your listeners should still go out and buy immediately. They're excellent and important books, but, um, but they aren't, this is, this is a personal narrative. It's more writerly. I think it's more of a page turner than most of my books. And I, there's a certain, you know, there's, and, and it's also trying to illuminate and expose a part of American life that's hidden a lot of the time. Like lots of people have weird chronic illnesses and um, they don't get a lot of attention and coverage. And so I'm getting a lot of reader responses that are sort of more immediate and visceral than the usual reactions to my to my books, I'd say, which is a good thing. I mean, I, I think I need to probably figure out some way um, to do something, maybe not for the times, but somewhere that sort of 
you know, puts together some people's testimonies and, and things like that. Like there's, I think there's sort of value in telling these kind of stories generally. Um, so that's, that's one kind of reaction, just more people saying, I read your book really quickly and it really resonated with me. Thanks for writing it. Um, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's been probably less immediate skepticism or than than I expected. And I very deliberately tried to put some of the weirdest stuff out into the world. I, you know, did this series for the times of three linked essays on it. And the third one includes a lot of stuff about some of the really weird stuff I tried with so-called Rife machines, which are these machines that generate audio frequencies that are supposed to shatter bacteria. And, you know, it's the kind of thing, if you read up on it online, you'd say, well, this is just pseudoscience or quackery or something. Um, And I really found it to work while being aware that it seemed like pseudoscience and quackery. Um, But I haven't gotten sort of a storm of criticisms. I think it's more, I think there are probably a lot of people who read these things and are like, well, I, you know, Ross doubts that I like and respect him. He's a smart guy. He's clearly gone through a lot. I don't really believe a bunch of what he's saying here, but, you know, he's suffered a lot. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go after him and attack him that much. Um, And I, in fact, in that vein, I don't think it's surprising that the one like full throated, I don't believe what Ross Douthat is saying here piece uh, that I've read so far was by Freddie DeBoer, who is a guy who, you know, it was a very nice review in certain ways. He really liked the book as a, piece of writing. Um, and I was, I was grateful for that. Um, but he, you know, he's, he's someone who is, as he always says, you know, very much outside the normal, um, kind of, you know, mutual, mutual respect circles of elite media. Um, and I'm sure that what he said in that piece is what a lot of smart readers think when they're encountering my arguments here and they're just a little less likely a little more filtered um, and a little less likely than him to say it. Um, but I'm sort of waiting for like the big, the big takedown from, from someone in the, you know, the large part of the medical community that thinks chronic Lyme disease doesn't exist. I would assume though that someone will, will produce a response at some point, maybe not, but you know, the, the thing seems- that, Sorry, the, the thing that struck me was I, I you know, I, I read your New York Times piece and you made comment about the Rife machine. You saying that it was one of the one of the weirder things that you um, that you tried, and that made, of course, that makes me think like, oh, I wonder what you're holding back. What's 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 even more fun than that? So you want to break any news and and tell us any other interesting stories? Well, it's also also the power of prayer, right? I mean, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I have a little bit in the book about some weird physical things not mystical things but sort of what seemed like physical reactions that i got at a certain point um with certain certain forms of prayer after going to confession once after you know asking for the intercessions of certain saints um that i that yeah that i I think to new york times readers at least that probably counts as being slightly weirder than even the rife machine um, I think there's other things that sort of tied with the Rife machine that were less, less vivid and, and, and sort of, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think there was anything I did on the fringes of medicine that was as weird as the book that you get when you buy a Rife machine. 
<laughs> because it's not just that you get, you think, all right, I'm going to get this machine and it's worked for a lot of Lyme disease patients. And so there's going to be a couple things that I do with this book, with this machine that are like very specific to Lyme disease, right? And, you know, if you go online and read about the Rife machine, there are some people who argue that it, you know, is is an effective cure for cancer, which, you know, I would be, I think it's important to be skeptical of that idea. Um, and then there's people who use it for Lyme disease and tick-borne illness, but you don't see a ton of other stuff with it, right? If, again, if you just do a sort of quick Google, the Lyme disease community is the place where you have the strongest uptake and championing that I've seen of this this weird tech. But then when you get the book that comes with the machine, it's just filled with lists of these frequencies that you're supposed to use for, I mean, you know, well, I think in the, I did like some A to Z thing in the, in the book, but I, I'm recording this in my attic where I keep all my weird stuff so I can pick up the book. And, you know, if you just flip to a random page, it will tell you, you know, well, here's gonorrhea. If you have gonorrhea, there's many frequencies that you can use. If you have gastritis or German measles, I guess rubella, right? Um, gingivitis, you know, th- those are just those are just some of the G, the, the G conditions, right? And so the question which I have not successfully answered is, you know, are there really people who have, you know, sort of experimented with this machine for all of these conditions over, you know, this decades that these machines have been around? Is there some element of actual charlatanry in this? You know, anyway, regardless, yeah, I, I don't think anything. I, I did, you know, I had a chiropractor put magnets on my body. I mean, I, I did a bunch of sort of fringy stuff, but the book itself is the weirdest the weirdest manifestation of fringe medicine that I encountered in this process. Do you think, so I want to talk, uh, you discuss kind of at the, at the end of the book, towards the end of the book, uh, you know, not only the effect that, um, going through this experience had on your, like your own, you know, personal life and medical things or whatever, but just, uh, maybe even, uh, uh, more general effect it had on the way that you uh, treat established authority, established knowledge. Um, I know, you know, uh, for example, you, you talk about a lot of parallels between Lyme uh, and the COVID, the coronavirus, uh, including, you know, if you read, uh, if for listeners, if you pick up the book, you will find out there is a bioweapons lab angle to Lyme disease too. Um, oh yes, yeah. Which is there is a yeah there is a lab leak hypothesis. There is a lab leak disease. hypothesis. Yeah. So you know uh, the writers, uh, you know, they're getting a little repetitive. Um, <laughs> only in my own life. Man. Only in your own life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, so do you think that this is really because I feel like. Um, the experience that you went through with this and the kind of, you know, uh, when, when you feel like this established authority, in this case, medicine that you had relied on, it's kind of failed you. It doesn't have answers. And so you got to go to like fringe places. That seems like something that I've seen a lot of from a lot of different people in many other contexts over the past, uh, you know, decade or half decade, however, however you want to, 
you know, put the, put the starting point on it. So, I mean, first, uh, have you, have you noticed that having like more general effects on, on your own thinking about these things? And then, you know, what do you make of that? Like, how do people navigate in this new world where you can't just say, well, you know, the science says, or the guy in the lab coat says, you know, X. And so I, I just believe that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell how much has changed in the last 10 years and how much has just become more visible thanks to the internet. Um, so, I mean, I, cause I do have, you know, some, I did have some experiences, not personally, but through my family with, you know, some holistic medicine stuff in the 1980s. Um, I, cause my mother had some, her own sort of set of chronic illnesses, um, inflammation and allergies and stuff, uh, that, you know, she ended up going somewhat outside the mainstream to treat. And then I sort of left that world behind and to my <laughs> shock and horror found myself back in it. But the world as I remember it from the eighties is not radically different from the world of today. There was tons of vaccine skepticism in the 1980s. You know, there was, you know, it was just all sort of more disorganized. The internet wasn't there. Um, and the, the sort of industry of wellness hadn't yet sprung up to sort of cater to some of these, some of these impulses. Um, but so there's been some kind of, there's been some kind of change mediated by the internet. There's been a kind of shift in the valence of skepticism of mainstream medicine, right from left to right, where, and this has happened quite rapidly because of Trump and COVID and everything else. But even when I was first sick or doing these weird experiments and thinking about writing about it, I sort of thought, well, if I write about it, it'll be like right-wing columnist does left-wing hippie stuff, right? But by the time the book has come out, it's more like, oh, right-wing columnists, they're always taking ivermectin, you know? <laughs> that, that's just what right-wingers do, right? Yeah, you need to so get Rogan. Joe, right. It's Joe Rogan. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's um, at the very least, maybe not right-wing, but, you know, intellectual dark web, right? That's what, that's what those IDW guys do. Not that anyone uses that term anymore, but, you know, two years ago, that's what we would have said. So anyway, so like there's there's that shift where these ideas have sort of become associated with the political right as the political right has become more populist and anti-establishment and a liberalism that once encompassed a lot more skepticism of official science and medicine now sort of feels itself you know, like its fate is bound up in the fate of Anthony Fauci, as goes Fauci, so goes liberalism or something. Um, so those are those are some of the dynamics in play. And I guess, you know, I've written a little bit about this, but I mean, the, the challenge to me is figuring out a way to maintain an equilibrium um, when you have one of these experiences where the establishment clearly fails you or you become part of some group of people who the establishment is just failing and going through that experience and learning something from it without assuming that therefore the establishment is always wrong, assuming that you need some sort of outsider guru who can answer all your questions the way liberals sometimes seem to think Anthony Fauci can answer all of their questions. So there's, there's some kind of balance here that you need to be able to strike as a person, as an institution, as a country of, you know, more open-mindedness than I think official, like, you know, Facebook needs more fact checkers <laughs> consensus <laughs> kind of, kind of allows for, but then, 
you know, you don't you don't want to go all the way to you don't want to go all the way to QAnon. You don't right. even want to go all the way to like where Aaron Rodgers, you know, has ended up. Like, I, I mean, there's there's there's, you know, there's clearly big problems with the do your own research paradigm, like inherent problems with that paradigm. Right. At the same time, I did my own research right. to get better from Lyme disease, right? Yeah. So you have to be able to hold those. I, I at least have to try and hold those two ideas together in my mind. Um, and and it's a, a challenge. Like with vaccines, you know, I am I got the COVID vaccine. I am pro-vaccine. As far as I can tell, you know, adults should get the vaccine. Um, but I do have a little more sympathy than I would have had 10 years ago for vaccine skeptics, especially when they've had some kind of bad experience with official medicine in, in their own lives. Um, and you know, yeah, relative to myself five years ago, I do also have, you know, I read the research that Aaron Rodgers did and I'm like, well, that's not convincing. The guy should get vaccinated. Right. right? right, right. But I also have had this, this, my own experience that still makes doubts creep in around the edges, right? Like I'm really confident that if the vaccines were causing large numbers of, you know, normal adverse health events, the way, you know, the myocarditis stuff or something that the system would pick up on it. I do worry a little bit that like there are some adverse health, adverse side effects to the vaccine that like other chronic illnesses don't fit into existing categories that maybe are getting underestimated. Like I I worry a little bit about that just because I've gone through that kind of experience myself where you have something that doesn't fit into a medical box and the system can't seem to process it. So anyway, I, yeah, I have the Rife machine in my attic. I got vaccinated. Um, and that's the balance I've tried to strike. <laughs> Very good. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and whether Epstein killed himself, we can discuss that another day. That's, but, that's yeah. for, that's for next time. Well, that's, that's the kind of thing where, right. Where you're like, you know, did Epstein, I mean, yeah, who can who anyway we, we can say so if you were writing another one of your your pompous books about the fate of western civilization like decadent society would would anything that you learned through this experience through the experience of the lyme disease and writing this book would anything that's happened with that experience affect your outlook with you know what you wrote in decadent society would it change your sort of your outlook towards maybe being a little bit more understanding of some of the crazy people out there, some of the more people that maybe you might have viewed as just purely decadent? Would it had it have any effect? Well, so the th- the the thing is that I so this book came out after the Decadent Society, um, but I wrote the Decadent Society while I was, if anything, substantially sicker and sort of deeper in the weird world of chronic illness. So to some extent, the ideas in this book are are already there implicitly in the decadent society, but it's less in terms of sort of sympathy for the cranks and more in terms of like seeing seeing systematic failure <laughs> as a key aspect of early 21st century American life, meaning institutional and bureaucratic failure. Um where, you know, the sort of particular problems that the medical system has processing the complexities of chronic illness are an example of 
the larger pattern of institutional decadence. Uh, and if you really wanted to go overboard, you would say, well, isn't decadence itself a chronic illness, right? The thing that, you know, that sort of diminishes you, but doesn't kill you, right? That isn't quite, you know, isn't as devastating as, as some things, but is quite, quite bad enough. Um, so there's a way in which you can read the themes of this book backward into my last, my last pompous book. And you could also see, you know, this, the deep places isn't in the end a blueprint for how to treat Lyme disease, but it is an argument that chronic illness can be treated and that people, the medical system and doctors and patients should work harder to try and treat it. And in that sense, I'm trying to sort of answer my own challenge in the decadent society where it's like, all right, you know, you can't solve all, all, you can't solve all of decadence at once, but you, if you are presented with a particular problem or a particular system failure um, that is sort of somewhat more within your capacity to address, you should try and address it. Um, so you could say my argument slash appeal for better treatment of chronic illness is trying to like take a tiny little slice of American decadence that I have personally been <laughs> victimized by and try and be helpful in pushing back against it. Like, you know, if you really could treat and cure, you know, 50% more chronic illnesses, that would be a small but substantial blow against, uh, against medical decadence. Um, and, you know, maybe I could be associated with that that kind of triumph. So perhaps, uh, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but maybe I'm trying to pose a question. Um, so maybe the learning that there was uh, some uh, relief from the symptoms of this um, through, uh, I guess you could say experimentation, but but self-learning and, and thinking outside the box and not just simply deferring to um, you know, the, the so-called experts, but also trying to think rationally and not just go uh, off the deep end. Maybe that actually is part of the lesson for how we deal with the decadent society as well, is that we need more of us that are actually thinking for ourselves and trying to do our p- small part to, to improve our, our well-being and the well-being of those around us. Yes. And I, I, I think you, you want to find a way to take not sure exactly how to how to phrase this right but um i think one of the big problems with the critique of decadence or the rejection of it or the revolt against it is that it's sort of it's unfocused and deinstitutionalized or anti-institutionalized right um so you know something like the gilet jaune in france right you get these sort of leaderless rebellions against against decadent institutions that have, you know, plenty of grievances and sort of understandable motivations, but don't add up to a kind of specific reform agenda in the end. Um, And you can see a similar problem in a slightly different way in how Trumpism has worked in the United States. So treating decadence not as sort of a general miasma to be raged against, but as a set of discrete problems to be addressed with um, you know, outside the box solutions, alternative institutions, like things that you can build and do, uh, I think is a very helpful way, not a perfect way, but at least a helpful way of thinking, thinking about the problem. Um, and again, boiling it down to, you know, sort of this particular problem might have this particular solution. 
I think is the only way that any like individual or even set of institutions can try and get their get their hands around the problem. Like it's a very small group of people who have the powers to actually do something about decadence writ large, as opposed to a particular problem of decadence in a particular place and time and community and or area of medicine in this case. This this may be a little bit like asking you to pick your favorite child, but I know that when I discover an author that I connect with, that I like, that I enjoy, that I want to go back and I want to read more of their books that are maybe a little bit older. If somebody picks up these, your two most recent books and they, they, and you want them to, um, to sort of get who you are as a person and as a writer, which of your prior books would you direct them to? I mean, I, I think that the, I don't know. (laughs) Your your agent says, buy them all. (laughs) My agent says, buy them all. I, you know, I'm sort of hesitant only because The Deep Places is a memoir. It's a narrative. It's a very different kind of book. The book of mine that it's most like is the book I wrote about Harvard that I wrote when I was really too young to write books. Um, so there's part of me that says, well, if you enjoy this style of my writing, this kind of narrative, personal narrative style, um, you're most likely to enjoy going back and reading Privilege. Um the same time i sort of can't bear to reread privilege <laughs> myself <laughs> so you know so i'm i i'm i'm hesitant to make that recommendation i th- i think the richest the richest book that i've written is probably bad religion just it's a you know this came out in 2012 parts of it have been overtaken by events but a lot of it still holds up and it's sort of a macro level analysis of what's happened to american christianity and american religion over the last 50 years so that's that's probably the safer book to point to point people to, um, but it's very different from the deep places, which is a you know a clear departure from almost all of my previous books. Yeah, I will say I have read all of your books except for Privilege. I I I one day I will read about your adventures skinny dipping with famous conservative figures, but uh, all of the ones that I've read, I I have. I have found to be uh, excellent in their own way. Uh, you know, it, to change the church, obviously that's probably going to be more of interest to people who are Catholic and uh, Grand New Party. Um, Grand New Party has been completely vindicated by events, but has. you don't actually necessarily need to. Yes, yeah. To read it, you just have we have we have lived it, except for the part about a wonderful a wonderful <laughs> Republican policy agenda to meet the new realignment. Um, but the realignment it describes is just the reality that we all that we all live with. So I think it's of interest, um, but I think a lot of readers will not be. What was surprising about its analysis, to the extent there was anything surprising, is no longer surprising to anyone now. And the hopeful and optimistic parts just sort of feel, you know, you feel sort of wistful thinking about how young and naive we were. Yeah. All right. Our guest today has been uh, Ross Douthat. Ross, thank you very much for joining the Urban Cowboys. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And watch out for those very occasional Texas cases of Lyme disease.